Uh, If you turn in your copy of Scripture to Revelation chapter 16, uh, we'll be continuing on uh, with this series that we see in chapter 16 of the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor Matt will preach on the seventh bowl. Uh, Today we look at bowls five and six. You can find this on page 1037 if you're using the Pew Bibles. When you have found that, would you please stand for the reading and hearing of God's holy word. I'll just remind you as we approach the Scriptures that this is indeed the infallible, inerrant, and authoritative Word of the living God. Revelation 16, verses 10 through 16. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. May God add his blessing on this, the reading of his holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Um, I had a lot of fun studying this passage this week, and uh, I want to give you as much as I can of what I've learned, so we are going to dive right in today. Um, My plan uh, in terms of how it is that we'll approach this text is we're going to begin first with the very last word that I read, Armageddon. Uh, and we'll try to understand uh, what it is that John is uh, referring to, what is referenced here in this book of Revelation. We'll start with Armageddon. Um, and then the outline uh, for the sermon at that point will be fairly simple. We're going to consider uh, what the evil one is doing, uh, secondly, what the Lord is doing, and lastly, what must we do. Um, so let's begin with this word Armageddon. Again, you find it uh, in verse 16. This, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. This is the only time in the scriptures uh, that Armageddon um, appears uh, in them, and you probably come with a number of uh, cultural associations. Oftentimes, Armageddon is simply equated with the cataclysmic end of the world. Uh, You may have some uh, theological associations as well with the word, um, and it's a difficult one because there's still ongoing debate Um, uh, regarding what exactly John is referring to. Uh, Many proposals, even if they gain a lot of traction, have still not uh, seemed to win the day in a comprehensive uh, way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you, first of all, the majority view, uh, what most people uh, think John is referring to uh, with this word Armageddon. 
Um, and then I'm going to give you another view, and it's actually the second one that has me about 80% convinced right now. Um, it represents a minority view, uh, one that if you read uh, broadly in kind of evangelical theology, you probably won't come across it. It has me 80% convinced, though, and 80% is, I think, enough uh, that I feel like I need to tell you, uh, but also low enough that I want you to take a little bit of warning <laughs> that I don't, after five minutes, want you to come away more convinced than I am. <laughs> Uh, but I want you, again, my goal today is that if you hear some of the argument, I want you to come away uh, recognizing that this view deserves serious consideration. So, first of all, the common, the most common view, Armageddon uh, is probably better pronounced something like Harmageddon. Harmageddon, uh, many uh, understand this to be a reference to Megiddo or Mount Megiddo, Har meaning mount or mountain in Hebrew. Uh, and then Megiddon uh, being a reference to Megiddo. Uh, Megiddo is uh, located two days, a two days walk north of Jerusalem. It shows up a couple of times in the Old Testament. Uh, in Judges 5.19, uh, Deborah, the prophetess and judge of Israel at the time, together with Barak, the military leader, uh, sing a song of victory, and in that song, uh, they mention the waters of Megiddo as a place of battle. Megiddo also comes up in 2 Kings 23 uh, as the place, or again, by the waters there, is the place where Josiah, one of the good kings of Judah, where Josiah was killed in battle. And it's actually interesting, again, uh, probably there's a reference to that in Zechariah 12, verse 11, uh, where the mourning, the, the grieving that is to take place uh, at and near Jerusalem is compared to uh, the grieving that took place in Megiddo, probably a reference to uh, Josiah's death at that time. Now, the connection to Zechariah is particularly uh, convincing and compelling uh, because of the ultimate or eschatological overtones of Zechariah chapter 12. Um, so, uh, most often, Armageddon is understood to be Har Megiddo, Mount Megiddo. Now, there's two difficulties with this majority view. The first is, there's no mountain at Megiddo. <laughs> so what exactly is he referring to? There's a plain, and uh, there's a broad area where certainly people are able to gather large armies for battle, so some sense of uh, fitting the context. But there's no obvious mountain at this place, and there's various proposals uh, none of which have been entirely convincing by others, but various attempts uh, to try to bring a mountain into view as it relates to Megiddo. The second trouble and difficulty is a little bit more broader in looking at the Scriptures, that the kind of conflict and the kind of reality that's represented in Revelation uh, 16 is something that most often in the Old Testament and even the New uh, is associated with something that takes place at and around the city of Jerusalem, not Megiddo. Uh, Jerusalem understood either literally in terms of the geographic place on a map or perhaps even typologically and symbolically in reference to the people of God. So it suggests perhaps there may be something else going on here in what John is referring to. That's the majority position, Mount Megiddo. But again, there's no obvious mountain 
uh, and oftentimes uh, the backdrop for this takes place, it seems, in another place. So there's another interpretation that I've been uh, considering this week. It's argued by Old Testament scholar and theologian Meredith Klein, though it's not quite unique to him. Uh, and I'll give you a summary of what this is and then give you three or four points as to how you would argue for this. Uh, the summary is this, that uh, when John says Armageddon or Har-Mageddon, it is a transliteration of, uh, of a Hebrew phrase that means mount of assembly. Mount of assembly. So that verse 16 says something like this, they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called the Mount of Assembly. So let me describe to you how it is um, uh, that this is seen. The first is this. Uh, John, also the gospel writer, the man who had also written uh, John 1, uh, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, also wrote uh, Revelation. Uh, he occasionally in his writings will transliterate either a Hebrew or an Aramaic phrase and uses a Greek word to refer to it, uh, uh, Hebraisti. He says, I give you a Hebraisti, which is either Aramaic or Hebrew-derived, and it is a transliteration. A transliteration is you say, uh, you take a word from one language, and you don't translate it, you don't give the understanding, you don't give the meaning, but you, you simply write those same sounds using the letters of a different language. So the word shalom is like that. Shalom is a Hebrew word meaning, meaning peace. You've probably seen shalom transliterated. You don't translate it into peace, but you transliterate it by writing S-H-A-L-O-M. It's a transliteration of a Hebrew word. So often John uh, does this quite a bit, twice in Revelation, four times in the Gospel of John. Now what's interesting is that each time that John does this, he not only provides the transliteration, but he also gives a translation or some alternative way of referring to the same thing, so that you don't simply have the Aramaic and Hebrew word, you also have another way of referring to the same reality. So just as an example, in John 20, uh, Mary says to Jesus, quote, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Rabboni is the transliteration of an Aramaic word. Teacher is the translation of that Aramaic Word. So most often this is what happens. Now, if we expect then the same pattern in Revelation 16, then whatever Harmageddon means, we would expect that John gives a corresponding translation or confirmation of what that meaning is. And so we actually find that, that the closest thing in verse 16 to a confirmation of the meaning of Armageddon is how it's referred to. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So uh, plausibly, we would expect then um, that whatever John is referring to with Armageddon uh, fits with this idea of assembling. Now the second point, and again, I'll have to uh, explain this to some of you who are more interested uh, after the service, but there is a plausibly derived Hebrew word that means, the, or combination that means the mount of assembly. It's more often, uh, uh, more often um, uh, pronounced something like har moed, but there are times when it is transliterated into Greek, or at least the letters are transliterated in a way that is like har moged, har mogedon. 
Um, so I'd be happy to talk more about that if anyone's interested after the service. But there is a plausible word or derivation uh, meaning mount of assembly. The third thing I want to point out is Isaiah 14. If you have a Bible, turn there. And we find um, uh, in what's translated mount of assembly here is actually behind it is the same Hebrew phrase uh, that I'm suggesting uh, may be behind Armageddon in Revelation 16. Isaiah 14, I'll read verses 12 to 15. Listen to this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. That's the phrase we're looking at. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So the context here, here is evil's a prideful attempt to ascend to the high throne of God on the Mount of Assembly. Uh, but instead, what do you have? It's cast down. And again, that contrast is interesting. Notice that it's contrasted between the heights of the Mount of Assembly where the throne of God is, and then cast down then to the depths of the pit of shale. Uh, that contrast is important because of something else John is also doing then in Revelation 9. Uh, turn again to Revelation. Revelation 9.11 is the only other place where John presents something like what we see in Revelation 16, in this book that is, where he gives another Hebraisty or a Hebrew transliterated word in Revelation 9, verse 11, it says this, They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, uh, which means destruction. Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Abaddon is often associated again with either death or Sheol. Uh, so John, as he gives these two times where he transliterates a Hebrew word and then gives some understanding of what it is, he is contrasting two places. One the highest heights of the Mount of Assembly contrasted with what is the lowest pit of destruction in Revelation 9. The same contrast that you see in Isaiah 14 as John contrasts, again, the place that the evil one might seek to assault and ascend to as opposed to the depths of the pit of destruction uh, to which he is sent on the other. Uh, for these reasons, uh, it seems to be that, again, at least a position worthy of serious consideration is that what John is getting at in Revelation 16 is something like this. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called the Mount of Assembly, the glorious Mount of Assembly, what is often referred to as, as, as actually Mount Zion, the place where the people of God uh, gather together to worship the King, even in a, in, a very, in a heavenly sense, the place to which we are gathered today to worship our God, the heavenly Mount Zion, the Mount of Assembly. Now again, I'm fairly convinced of this position, but I don't want you to be more convinced than I am. <laughs> right now, I'm about 80%. All right, so let's work through this text then. Uh, three main points that we'll consider. The first, as we look at these bowls, what is the evil one doing? Secondly, what God is doing. Third, what must we do? Uh, so, what the evil one is doing. 
He is doing everything in His power to deceive the whole world into battle against God Almighty. He's doing everything in His power to deceive the whole world into battle against God Almighty. Look again at your text, Revelation 16. Uh, it, it includes what is some kind of activity of, of the dragon, verse 13. There's something coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, we've seen these three figures before, haven't we? Uh, what Pastor Matt has, has described as a kind of counterfeit trinity. You have the dragon referred to as the evil one himself. You have the first beast and then the second beast that here is described as the false prophet. Here is every manifestation of evil in its centralized and powerful form is active here. All three. And then also there's a reference to demonic spirits. So whatever it is that he has, he's doing everything in his power uh, to do something. All three are involved. And what he's seeking to do is actually focused on deception. Look again at the text. You see this in the frogs uh, in terms of where they come from and also what the frogs are engaged in and what they do. Verse 13, again, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Oftentimes the mouth of the evil one and of his servants is characterized by speaking falsehoods, by what are blasphemies, either something that is, uh, that is the opposite of what, true, what is true or counter to it, or perhaps what is a manipulative uh, attempt to command obedience when he has no right to command it. Uh, here is an attempt to deceive by what comes from his mouth in some sort of verbal way. But you also see a focus on deception in what the frogs are doing. Verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs going abroad to the kings wanting to do something then. Performing signs. Again, we've seen this idea already in the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14 where with the false prophet or the second beast, there were signs performed that were for the purpose of leading astray and, to de and deceiving. Uh, this is what the evil one is seeking to do. He's trying to do, you, uh, do everything within his power to deceive. And who is he seeking to deceive? The whole world. The whole world. Look again, uh, getting a sense of the scope Involved here, verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. This is rather extensive, what he is trying uh, to do. Now, just a reminder, we need to resist a worldview that considers everything and interprets everything in the world in terms of what is most familiar to us and our circumstance and setting. <laughs> We can't interpret the world through the lens of our nation, of our politics, our family, my life. It's far too narrow. There's something much broader going on uh, in terms of what is involved and happening in the world. Uh, the evil one is seeking to deceive the whole world, but more specifically, the way in which he does it, he employs a particular strategy not going directly to all in the world, but notice again, verse 14, uh, go, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world. Focusing on those perhaps who have um, a place of, of influence, of power, of authority, those whom you can consider nations would be likely to follow and to trust and to be led even into battle by them. Now, two, two things uh, to remind us of and to warn us, or two things 
two ways to apply this. Uh, first is this, uh, be ready for the kind of deception involved here. Uh, it's not simply a direct deception, but an indirect one by way of leading those whom we might be likely to trust and follow. That's part of the strategy in going after kings. Peoples will follow their king most often, many times. Uh, so someone whom uh, you would recognize as having a measure of influence, power, or authority, or even trust, beware, and again, not just what other, those other people trust, but who do you trust? <laughs> uh, beware that we are not led into deception as the evil one employs such a strategy. Uh, but there's also a comfort in recognizing what's going on here. Because the evil one employs a strategy because he needs a strategy. Um, how, how, do you, um, how do you try to, uh, to organize and lead large groups of people? Because we can only do so much. Even a voice can only carry so far, even with amplification. Uh, the way it is that you can lead large groups of people is you take something that is large and you break it down into smaller pieces. And you go after some, and then you have those few uh, move on then to influence and lead others beyond you, so that you have what is your limited ability is then amplified by this kind of a strategy. And guess what? Even the evil one needs a strategy because he is finite and limited. He cannot be everywhere at once. Our God is omnipresent, but not the evil one. <laughs> Um, our God is all-powerful, but the evil one is not. And he goes after a few. He himself is also created. He's not the creator. Uh, he has a beginning. He is limited in his power and his authority. He employs a strategy because he needs one. And already, that's, that spells his downfall because he is against one who has no limits in his power wisdom, and authority. He employs a strategy because he needs one. Finally, uh, the evil one, he uses everything in his power to deceive the whole world to what end? To lead them into battle against God Almighty. Look again at 14. Uh, they, their, their demonic spirits performing signs go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And if you take how we've described the word Armageddon in verse 16, it says this, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon or the Mount of Assembly. He's gathering them together for the sake of battle against God Almighty and for that reason also against his people. Uh, we should not be surprised when we see a rising hostility against the church and against his people. Uh, because what is going on here? Here is a gathering together of peoples and indeed the whole world to the very place where you cannot help but already find the people of God gathered to worship the true God. It's the place where they are gathered. He assembles, he assembles them, and we ought not then be surprised when we see this. But notice this, insofar as we see something like this dynamic at play in the world, and again, I, you probably do see something like this. Again, there are various times in the history of the church where people get a sense of what is a broad working of opposition against the Lord and against his people. To whatever extent you see something like this, please know this. 
it does not reach its conclusion until the day, the great day of God the Almighty. Some of us uh, very easily switch into battle mode, right? Uh, We see what is opposition to the truth and the church, and suddenly we've got the gloves on and we are fighting. But as much as it may be true that we see something of the gathering, deceptively gathering influence of the evil one in this world, the battle is not yet. Now this may surprise you, because the evil, evil one certainly assaults the people of God, and there was a call for us to be prepared and to endure and to persevere. So there is something to what is a spiritual warfare and battling that does take place. But the kind of reality that's taking place here that's described is something that waits for its conclusion on the great day of God Almighty. We are not yet in battle against the unbelieving world. That's maybe surprising for you to hear that. But it's a gathering that precedes it. A gathering what is a preparation for a battle and for the great day of the Lord. And please hear this, the battle belongs to the Lord, and so we wait for that day. Uh, this is what the evil one is doing. He's doing, doing, using everything in his power to deceive the whole world into battle against God Almighty. Well, what is the Lord doing? <laughs> What's God doing here? Well, you see um, a kind of preparation and beginnings of it in the fifth bowl. Look again at your text. Uh, here, uh, we see something that is, uh, that is poured out uh, that is directed more precisely against the evil one in the kingdom of darkness. Look at verse 10. Uh, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged, in, plunged into darkness. So already you get a sense that, that there is something building here that aims at the evil one and his kingdom. God's doing something against the evil one. And his kingdom. There's also a repetition in verse uh, verse 11 of what is the kind of refusal to repent and to turn from their deeds that we'd already seen characterizes those who are devoted to the evil one. There's a hard-heartedness that if again you keep in mind what happens in the sixth bowl, here are people who are prepared and ready to be led and to be deceived. Here is preparation in the fifth bowl for what follows in what is an assault against the evil one and even those who follow with him in charging against the Almighty. Bowl 6, notice what happens. The sixth bowl is poured out on the great river Euphrates, it says, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Oftentimes when the Lord does something to dry up the waters, it's so his people can cross over, right? But here, surprisingly, the Lord dries up the waters. And why? It's so that the the world, those who were led by the evil one, now have access and are able to follow. You see how the Lord is actually the one preparing and enabling and provoking the conflict that's taking place here. Um, uh, notice, Notice the frogs as well before I comment on this. Uh, Notice the frogs. If you remember some of the background of what what took place with the Exodus, who is the one that brought the plague of the frogs? It's the Lord. Um, And and certainly here's a kind of counterfeiting uh, working of this thing, but you remember, you keep in mind that even in this context behind this, behind these frogs, you know that it's God who is the one who is plaguing and working these mighty acts 
for His glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says this. Uh, rather, verse, look at verse 11 and 12. It says that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Behind the deception of the evil one, uh, there is the working of the Lord who is preparing the deceived for condemnation. God is doing something here, even through what the evil one seeks to do against him. Um, Finally, other comments on the text. Uh, The circumstances of the battle, as it's described here, are determined by God alone and not by the evil one. Notice the name. Uh, They're gathering them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. It is not the evil one who sets the time of the battle, but the Lord. And in fact, the one whose name is associated with the great day of battle is not the evil one, but the true victor of that battle, God Almighty. Here is something that the Lord is doing. The Lord provokes the gathering of the nations for this great battle. The question then for us is why? (laughs) Why would he do such a thing? We're often confronted with that when we see what's going on in the world. Why would it have to be this way? Why is there not much more of a sympathy or at least relief from what we see around us? Well, two reasons. The first is this. The Lord uh, prompts the gathering of the nations for this great battle, number one, in order to defeat his enemies. Zechariah chapter 12. Read a couple verses from this chapter. Zechariah 12 uh, verses 3 and 9. 3, on that day I will bring, make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. And verse 9, and on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. There was a gathering against this place that the Lord might then destroy. He is seeking to defeat his enemies. Micah chapter 4, verse 11 says this, Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. For they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Here is a gathering together against the Lord and against His people, and they do not understand what is the more powerful and sovereign decree of God that He is gathering the nations in order to thresh them in judgment. Why are they gathered? Why does God provoke this? He is gathering his enemies that he might strike them down as one man. Insofar as you see the world, in some sense, what seems to be joining against the Lord and against his people, to whatever extent you experience that or you see that, you have confirmed that the Lord is the one who will defeat his enemies. This is how it works out. This is how it's described in Revelation 16. He gathers, he provokes the gathering that he might defeat his enemies. But the second reason, and please do not forget this, (laughs) the second reason why he provokes the gathering of the nations is so that he might gather in all of his elect people. He's gathering in his elect. Now I want to show you this uh, from a few passages in Isaiah. Isaiah 11. You may have to flip through a few. You can follow if you can. Perhaps even write these down. Isaiah 11, verse 15. And 
And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river, that is the great river Euphrates, will raise his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Again, the same imagery of the Lord striking the river Euphrates and peoples are gathering across, but who else is coming? The remnant of his people, we're told. Now it gets better, Isaiah 19 says this, Isaiah 19, verses 23 and 24, what status do those who come in have, or who are they? Verse 23, it says, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. You get a sense of the same ideas? From Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the whole of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, uh, and Israel, my inheritance. Here is a remnant that comes from those who had been enemies of God. And guess what? They are considered as, as being, having full covenant status before the Lord himself. What is he doing? He's gathering in his elect people. Finally, Isaiah 27, verse 12. In that day from the river Euphrates... To the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Did we not already talk about the Mount of Assembly? The Lord is gathering in his elect people to the place where he himself is worshipped. To whatever extent you see the world rallying against the Lord and his people and gathering them together in preparation for this great battle, remember he is also gathering to himself sinners that he might save many. He is still gathering in his people. So here's the reality. From John's day even into ours and continuing on until the great day of that battle, the unbelieving world, especially as it is hostilely opposed to the people of God, is the, is the field that is ripe for the harvest. God is gathering His elect people out of those who were enemies. There is no Christian who was not an enemy of God until the Lord made them alive with Christ Jesus. That's who He saves. He saves those who were at enmity with Him, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, um, who, who followed the course of this world and, and the Spirit who... Uh, and, and the, uh, I'm going to mess up the language now. He followed the, uh, the evil one. They're following the evil one in opposition to the Lord. And you can't see any difference between them and those who are wholly committed to the end to the evil one except that now God saves. It is enemies whom he saves. The Lord is gathering in his elect people. So I ask you, which would you prefer? That a dying world runs away from the church and gives you rest and ease for whatever remaining days you have left in this world? Or that a dying world would gather against the church in hatred and hostility if only God might still save some sinners just as he has saved us.
We feel this opposition. It hurts. It is frightening. But what is God doing? He's gathering people to the place that He might redeem them. He's not done gathering in His elect. It's part of what God is doing. The words of Paul. He says this. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul was raised against the people of God as an enemy until God saved him. (laughs) He saves enemies. The Lord is gathering the peoples together that he might gather in all of his elect. That's what the Lord is doing. He's gathering for judgment and and salvation. So what then must we do? Well, we see it in verse 15. Look again at your text. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The first thing that we are to do is to stay awake. Stay awake. Uh, Or to watch is sometimes how it's translated. Now, keep in mind what it is that is the focus of us as we watch and as we stay awake. The image of a thief, if you know that a thief is coming or if you're concerned that a thief is coming, what you are attuned to and what you are watching for is the thief who may come. Uh, Jesus uses the same uh, kinds of ideas in Matthew 24, 42, where he describes using the same image of us watching and being awake as those who are wait, servants who are waiting for their master to come. They are awake looking for him. The point is this. As much as we do recognize much evil in this world, as much as we do recognize what is rising hostility at times against the church, we are to be more preoccupied with the Lord who is coming than with the evil one and his working. Do you know that? To be awake is not to be awake to the evil of the world, but first, as it is in this context, is to be awake and to be watching for the Lord who is coming. He is at the heart. Of our life. He is at the heart of our preoccupation. We are to stay awake. And secondly, what are we to do? We're to keep, keep your garments on. <laughs> Which seems like a very simple thing to tell each other. Stay clothed, right? The imagery is a little bit humorous. It's that idea of, uh, of being caught at night uh, without being properly clothed, and suddenly something calls you out of your bedroom and you have to go out. And if you don't have clothes on, then you're in a rather embarrassing situation. And he says, stay clothed. Keep your clothes on that you might not be caught off guard. Um, uh, There's there's some debate over what exactly the clothing is when John speaks about this in the book of Revelation. Here's my approach. 1 Peter 3, he describes, uh, he says, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart. 1 Timothy 2, Paul again talks about what it is to be adorned with good works. Revelation 19, 8, when it sees, you see the image of the bride who is ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb, it says this, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I think what he's talking about is here is the gifted, what is gifted to us 
what comes, yes, from the, from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the salvation that He's worked, uh, worked for us. Here is uh, the Spirit-worked uh, renewal in the lives and hearts of the people of God that brings forth the fruit of good works and mercy and love unto the glory of our God, so that we are adorned with the fruit of God's work in us. And we need this warning and charge. Jesus gives a kind of warning in Matthew 24. On the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, it says this, Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. See, here's the effect he's talking about. That we will look out on the world and we will see that there is lawlessness everywhere. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They don't care at all about what God says, what he says is wrong, what he says is right. And then there will be some who may not be drawn away into the same lawlessness, but they will respond in another way and say, you know what, what's the use of doing anything of any value or merit or what the Lord calls beautiful, good, right, and true? It's not going to have any effect anyways. It's not going to be appreciated by anyone around me. And so as lawlessness increases, the love of many grows cold. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place, but why do we live as the Lord calls us to, being zealous for good works, as Paul says in Titus? Why do we live this way? Not because, first, the effect it's going to have on the world around us. Not because it's going to be appreciated by others. Why? Because we delight to be adorned for our Lord at His coming. We delight to be clothed for Him when He returns. That's the focus of the people of God. We are adorned for Him. And John reminds us that those who would be adorned for Him, waiting and watching, enduring, even all that is described in Revelation 16, for them there is a blessing. Blessed are those who stay awake and keep their garments on. As the evil one gathers against the Lord, and therefore against the church gathering many people, the Lord Himself is the one who is preparing for judgment and working out His salvation. He's still doing that. So stay awake. Persevere. Render to the Lord what is His and what is His due that we might be adorned for our King when He finally comes.